teaching. We have uh, Jesus' extensive teaching on uh, divorce and, and uh, marriage this morning. I would say in a church our size, probably all of our families have been affected by this topic in one sense or another. I, I hope as I teach this this morning, you can sense uh, the grace of God coming through in the message. It is a sobering, serious topic. And yet certainly with the Lord, there is grace and mercy. And, uh, you know, I guess my prayer would be that there would be conviction where conviction needs to be. There'd be comfort where comfort needs uh, to be applied. The Spirit knows just how to do that. And so I'm praying that, uh, you know, I said to my wife, you probably shouldn't teach on this until you're 65 years old. But uh, in other words, where you've poured over the scriptures for lots of years, I have certainly grown in grace uh, through my years in the ministry. And the joke of it all is I'm not 65 yet, right? I'm not 65 yet. Couple weeks, few weeks, but I'm not there yet. Anyway, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the, your, your word. It is your word. Help me to teach it accurately as you intend for me to do. Uh, so that as I rightly divide the word, I won't be ashamed on judgment day, as I will certainly give an account for what I have taught here this morning. So, Lord, help us to have ears to hear, and uh, Lord, uh, may the Spirit make the application just as you would have it to be made as the word of God goes forth this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in Matthew, and uh, the theme, the overall theme is Christ the King. We come down to the section we're in, chapter 17 through 20, uh, the instructions of the King. We note at the end of Matthew chapter 18 that we have the longest treatment on forgiveness found in the New Testament as taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. And thematically, we then come to the beginning of Matthew 19, where we have the longest treatment of marriage and divorce as found in the New Testament, as also taught by Jesus. The thematic connection relates to the need for forgiveness, not only in general with our brothers and sisters, but especially within the context of marriage, where hard-hearted unfaithfulness and divorce may occur in the, co- in the covenant community of believers. Let's pick it up. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This, in effect, denotes the completion of Christ's Galilean ministry as he now begins to make his way to the cross. He would not return to Galilee again until after the resurrection. Now there are various incidents that Matthew omits which happened between the conclusion of Christ's Galilean ministry and the events that led rapidly to the cross. But for his thematic purposes, Matthew now moves to the confrontation with the Pharisees in the region of Perea. From Galilee, Jesus came to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, which is a descriptive way of saying Perea. The word Perea simply means beyond, denoting the area beyond the Jordan called Perea. So Jesus had not previously ministered in this area, certainly not extensively, and so he he comes now uh, to this area down here. He's been up here, and this is where the bulk of Christ's earthly ministry took place. Uh, Capernaum was his uh, ministry headquarters during his uh, Galilean ministry. That's where he spent most of his time. But now uh, he's making his way down here uh, to Perea. And uh, so this is where he's at right now. 
And we continue verse 2. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The context is being set for Christ's next confrontation with the Pharisees. Everywhere Christ went, the multitudes followed him because of his extensive healing ministry. Truly, Jesus' healing ministry was unique in all the annals of history. It, it was in this context that we find verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him. So, multitudes following him, healing. But the Pharisees also came. And they came testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Note this was not an honest question but rather a loaded question with the intent of testing or challenging Jesus on a very controversial subject. Uh, Just before the time of Christ, there were two contemporary rabbis who developed contrasting views regarding Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And the issue of the debate centered around what constitutes legitimate grounds for divorce as found in Deuteronomy 24. And here's the key verse, Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, two schools of thought in terms of how to understand this. One school of thought was named after a rabbi named Hillel who taught that Moses allowed for divorce for essentially any reason. Uh, This was the liberal and the most popular school of thought amongst the Jews. Even the disciples seem to have been affected by this school of thought. The Hillel school of thought said a man could divorce his wife for all sorts of reasons, such as she burned his dinner. Or she put too much salt on his dinner. Uh, He no longer loved her. He found someone more attractive. She had too bushy of eyebrows. Uh, She went out into public with an uncovered head. Uh, She spoke disrespectful of his parents. Uh, She could not have children. Or just being unpleasant. I mean, really, any reason will work. But in contrast was the school of thought which was followed by a rabbi named Shammai. Now, Shammai taught that Moses permitted divorce, but only on the basis of some form of indecent behavior, such as lewdness or suggestive behavior, but that which came short of actual intercourse. So there were these two contrasting schools of thought in the background here, with the difference being on how they understood and applied Deuteronomy 24. In addition, this confrontation was taking place in the territory ruled by Herod Antipas, who was called out by John the Baptist on his sexually immoral relationship with his brother's wife named Herodias, and consequently got his head cut off. Part of the testing here may have been intended to embroil Jesus in a public dispute that would get him in trouble with Herod in a similar fashion as what happened to John the Baptist. So, the issue on the table is what is the legitimate basis before God for divorce? Not only was this uh, hotly debated in Christ's day, the debate continues on to this very day. The ideal, however, is very simple. 
God's intention for marriage is one man and one woman together in a covenant relationship for life till death do them part. I mean, we find the emphasis in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's a pretty simple and straightforward statement. Where it gets messy is with the issue of divorce. Someone has said that getting married is like falling into a river. It's a lot easier to get into it than it is to get out of it. You know, that's true. Divorce is always messy. And we live in a broken world where it is messy. It's never God's will, not his ideal will. It's never uh, what his original intention was. And yet in a fallen world, it is a reality that we do have to grapple with. So they asked, is it lawful? I mean, according to God, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 4. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Instead of getting in the middle of this controversy about who is right and who is wrong, Jesus went back to the ideal standard of God from the very beginning as found in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, God hasn't changed his standards on marriage. It goes right back to the beginning. Once again, we see the voice of Jesus as being the voice of authority. He speaks for God because he is God. And as God, he speaks with the authority of God. That's why we call him Lord, Lord God. On so many levels, this whole discussion is really about the place, uh, this discussion about the place of divorce and remarriage is really a lordship issue and is a matter of how serious we take his lordship authority. The question, have you not read would have been insulting to these Pharisees who prided themselves on their knowledge of the word. It's like Jesus saying to them, haven't you read the first page of the Bible? Notice what it says in that very first chapter, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Biblical thinking starts here. We live in such a messed up world. The world, has, they don't even know how to define marriage anymore. Marriage involves one man and one woman as created by God. God did not create one man and many women for him. You know, if your hope is that I'm going to go to heaven and have 72 virgins, I mean, maybe you ought to go back and read Genesis 1. God did not create one man and many women for him. And he didn't create one woman and many men for her. No, rather, he created one man and one woman and brought them to Gary together in marriage as man and wife, as it says in Genesis 2, 24. Thus, God created two complementary genders and not 249 different gender combinations, as one website reports. Here, Jesus affirms both the divine inspiration of Genesis and the reality of a historical Adam and Eve. And in doing so, he takes the text literally or normally for what it plainly says. If one has a problem with taking Genesis literally slash normally, then they have a problem with the authority of Christ because he took it normally for what it plainly says. Answers in Genesis is a ministry founded by Ken Ham, 
that emphasizes the, uh, quote, this is their byline, the authority of the Bible from the very first verse. Exactly. Jesus takes us back to the very beginning in the very first chapter of the Bible to show that God's standard for marriage has not changed. So we want to get that point. His standard, his ideal has not changed. It's not like, well, it used to be that way, but now it's just... No, Jesus goes back to the beginning. Over and over, he makes this emphasis here. Verse 5, and he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now here, Jesus quoted from Genesis 2.24. There is a leaving and a cleaving and a one flesh reality in marriage. Strong language is in view here. Uh, To leave literally means to abandon. Uh, This is a a whole new start for the couple. Uh, They are no longer to cling to their parental home. But this is the start of their own independent family. As I often say to Janie, no matter what happens, you and I, we're in this thing together. Peter describes it as being heirs together of the grace of life. And the words joined to means to be glued to. Uh, Literally, to be glued to. The idea is that they are now super glued together spiritually before God. One cannot break apart something that is super glued without incurring severe damage to what is glued together. The closest and most permanent relationship before God is not the parent-child relationship, but rather the relationship between the husband and the wife. As ordained by God, there is no closer bond than that of a husband and a wife, and nothing is to interfere with that reality, including outside family ties. The relationship is so intimate that it is quite literally a one-flesh relationship. The one-flesh relationship signifies oneness in life. Marriage is two lives now bound up together in one. It is a full giving of oneself to each other, to where the two are one. And marriage is a sexual reality. It's more than that, but it is definitely sexual. Joined to his wife, become one flesh, portrays the sexual union, which supersedes all other familial bounds or bonds. There is a physical reality to this, as well as a psychological and a spiritual reality. It denotes a union of their entire persons. Now, the sexual union in marriage is more than just a physical act because a covenant commitment before God is involved in which God spiritually joins the couple together as husband and wife. It's a God thing. To just have a sexual relationship without a covenant commitment is merely sexual immorality. True marriage involves both a covenant commitment and a physical consummation of oneness. Note uh, Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. Yet I say to you for what what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the, the wife of your youth. I mean God takes note of these vows. Uh, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. To make a covenant in the Old Testament literally meant to cut. You would cut a covenant. 
The people would cut animals up into various parts and make an aisle formed by the dead animal parts. And then the parties to the covenant would walk between the bloody pieces, signifying, if I don't keep my part, may God cause this to happen to me. So it was a very sobering commitment. Jeremiah 34, 18, And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. There's the concept. So a covenant was a sacred binding commitment, which one was responsible to keep before God on pain of death for violation. It is for this reason that under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. ESV study Bible. From the moment they are married, they are unified in a mysterious way that belongs to no other human relationship. Having all the God-given rights and responsibilities of marriage, they did not have before. Well, after ordaining the Institute of Marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, we find at the end of Old Testament history, God has not changed his standards as seen in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. What does God say there? He says, uh, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He hates it. A main point here with Jesus is that God has not changed his standards concerning marriage that he laid down from the very beginning. Marriage is still as it was ordained by God from the very beginning. Verse 6, So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. A covenant marriage as ordained by God between a man and a woman is a God thing. They are supernaturally joined together by God. I mean, you got God involved in this. God is the one who ultimately presides over the wedding. It's his doing. And what God has joined together in holy matrimony, man is not to separate. Now it is possible to do so, but man is commanded not to undo the work of God. I mean, even that very idea, undoing the work of God, I mean, that's a serious matter. The word separate is the same word used to describe divorce in 1 Corinthians 7:10. So whom God has joined together in marriage, let no one separate in divorce. Now it is important to note that the cross reference in 1 Corinthians 7 clearly shows that Jesus in his teaching ministry was addressing the marriage of believers in the covenant community of God's people and not the marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, which Paul goes on to then address. So uh, note just real quickly here, 1 Corinthians 7. Now to the married, he's talking to both believers. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, the Lord. This is what the Lord taught. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, to those believers who find themselves married to an unbeliever, to the rest, I. Paul says, I will address this. The Lord didn't. I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and if she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And he goes on from there. So in addressing the, the marriage of believers in the covenant community... 
Jesus goes back to God's original intent for marriage and basically says, per the original mandate, there was no out. I mean, he doesn't even address it. And at this point, they probably thought they had Jesus right here as they are biting at the bit to bring up Moses, to get Jesus to disagree with Moses would cause him to lose all credibility because Moses was known as the greatest prophet in the history of Israel. And so that's where they go. Jesus goes back to Genesis, the original mandate, and they say, but but, but Moses. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They immediately cited Deuteronomy 24.1, asking why Moses then commanded to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. And again, note what it says there in that text. When a man takes a wife, marries her, happens that she finds no favor. He's not happy. Not happy in the marriage. No favor in his eyes because, and he, because he has found some uncleanness in her. He writes a certificate of divorce, puts her hand, sends her out of the house. Again, the issue is what is lawful reason for legitimately divorcing your wife? The issue is what is some uncleanness? Note the context here is dealing with a married couple who is already living together, not merely those in a betrothal relationship, as some suggest. The Deuteronomy 24 context is clearly dealing with a couple already living together in a fully consummated marriage. This uncleanness couldn't be premarital intercourse with another man because that called for the death penalty. Very clearly, also in Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 and 21. It couldn't be adultery, full-fledged adultery, because that also required the death penalty as seen in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 27. This word uncleanness comes from a root Hebrew word that basically means nakedness or genitals and is consistently connected with the idea of shame. So when you put it all together, this uncleanness was evidently something sexually indecent, but not full-blown sexual intercourse. It's not totally clear. And even for the Jews, it was certainly not totally clear. Hence the reason Uh, They debated the nuance of it. It seems it did involve something sexually offensive, such as the woman flirting, uh, leaving her hair loose as they would have seen it, uh, or some such thing, uh, which may have been considered sexually suggestive and offensive, but technically it came short of full-blown adultery. I mean, you don't have to wonder about that. It clearly called for the death penalty. But the issue is, what is this uncleanness? So note the language in Deuteronomy 24, 1, that she, she finds no favor in his eyes. The idea of favor is the idea of grace, or perhaps even pity, and is connected to having found some indecency in her. And the idea is, there probably should have been some grace here. Um, it's a forgivable offense, but... No grace. Now the question is this. Is the emphasis on the man showing no grace? Or is it on the offensive nature of her uncleanness? What drives this? That's a great question. 
Uh, perhaps the hardness of heart that Christ goes on to describe could cut both ways. In other words, they both could potentially play this game to get out of the marriage. She could act indecently offensive, as they would consider it, uh, if she wanted out. And he could show no grace and find something he could claim as indecent if he wanted out, which is where Hillel went, to the extreme. However, there is a strong emphasis directed in particular to the man in the rest of the Old Testament. For example, in Malachi 2, 14 through 16, the warning is given three times to the men not to deal with their wives treacherously in the matter of divorce. Note this emphasis. Malachi 2, 14 through 16 Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, in a betraying manner, treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15, but he did not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce. For if one covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The message is directed to the men in terms of how they're treacherously dealing with their wives. Note, in this patriarchal context, the practice of the Jews was that only the males could initiate divorce. No wonder the onus here is put specifically on them in a very strong way. However, we note that Mark 10, 12 states that this principle, uh, states this principle in relation to women also, uh, as also does Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. So the principles related to divorce ultimately goes both ways. Now, it should be noted that the only command really given in Deuteronomy 24, 1 is that if the man decided to divorce his wife on the basis of uncleanness, he had to provide a certificate of divorce which would allow her to remarry. The certificate would, would literally say, you are free to any man. This officially released her from the marriage. And she was free then to remarry. However, she was forbidden then to return and remarry her first husband if she did get remarried. Verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus makes an important clarification. Moses did not command divorce, but rather permitted it in a qualified sense because of the hardness of their hearts. But from the beginning, this was never God's intention. The sense is that before God, they never really had strong grounds for divorce. But it was permitted because of the hardness, because the hardness of their hearts insisted on it. Thus, in the Old Testament, divorce was never commanded, but it was regulated as a concession to hard hearts. In this case, the bill of divorcement served as a form of protection for the women against hard-hearted treatment of the husbands who wanted out. It allowed her an out and the possibility of remarriage as, a, as certified by a divorce certificate. Note that where God permitted divorce, 
he also allowed for the possibility of remarriage. You see, the Pharisees did not ask about remarriage. For this was no problem. I mean, that was not part of the issue. They all agreed, okay, where the divorce is uh, uh, accepted, uh, remarriage is, is a possibility. It was assumed that if divorce was allowed, so then was remarriage. So that's not really the discussion. I believe the scripture is consistent on this, by the way, where divorce is permitted, then so also is remarriage. The real issue is what constitutes a legal divorce in the eyes of God? But this charge of hard-heartedness is no compliment. This insistence on divorce and remarriage was governed by hard hearts that in reality was contrary to God's perfect will from the beginning. Again, God's intention is that the marriage be permanent, dissolved only by death. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. Now, what Jesus says here builds on what he has already laid down earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. And it follows the same pattern of correction that goes deeper and makes a stronger application of God's truth. Let me show you what I mean. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed that his teaching actually went beyond the teaching of the Old Testament and actually presented a higher standard. For example, in Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's what the Old Testament taught. They heard that. They knew this. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, it's not only about the actual physical act, it's about what's going on in the heart, presenting a higher standard than they saw in the Old Testament. Jesus then goes on and really does the same thing with the issue of marriage. Notice what he says there in the Sermon on the Mount, same flow of thought, Matthew 5, 31. Furthermore, it has been said... Old Testament teaching, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's true. It does say that. Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, there's a higher standard. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You see, under the law of Moses, a concession was made to hard hearts that allowed for divorce for vague reasons related to some sort of indecency. But Jesus put in a higher place this standard, saying the only exception for divorce is immorality. Hard-heartedness was looser in what it allowed but under Christ, under grace, the regulation is more strict, with divorce being allowed for only in the case of absolute sexual immorality. The Greek word translated sexual immorality here is the, is the Greek word pornea. It's a very broad word, pornea. Uh, it includes all manner of sexual immorality. It, it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, uh, it is applied to the issue of incest. 
In various contexts, it relates to prostitution, premarital sex, extramarital sex. So it's, it's a broad word. Sexual immorality is a good translation. Clearly, Jesus recognizes that sexual infidelity strikes at the very heart of the marriage covenant. Marriage is really a sexual covenant in which vows are made to God, making it a sacred sexual covenant relationship. Say, am I getting married for sex? Yeah, you are. And it's a sacred commitment. Because of the sacredness of it, to sexually violate it provides grounds for divorce. Now, adultery, as I say, is always very messy. In the case of sexual unfaithfulness, the innocent party can remarry without the charge of adultery hanging over them. However, if the divorce is unbiblical, without the grounds of sexual immorality, then the person forcing the divorce is really guilty of being a contributing factor to adultery. This action pushes the innocent person out to where they will most normally find another person to marry. And since it is unbiblical, the person marrying her also commits adultery. So the person forcing the divorce is in effect perpetrating adultery. The person getting remarried is committing adultery. And the person they marry also commits adultery. It's one adulterous mess all the way around. Now, this does not mean that a person who commits adultery in remarrying is necessarily continually living in sin. You see, there is forgiveness with God for those who repent and get right. And then, as Paul emphasizes, we have to go on from where we are. We can't go back and unscramble scrambled eggs. You can only go forward. And it needs to be noted that even though the second marriage in this case is entered into in an adulterous fashion, it is still called marriage. The couple is then married. And it would be just as wrong to then try and sever that marriage, for that would just add another divorce to the situation. In John 4, when Jesus addressed the woman at the well, he told her that she previously had five husbands, whom he recognized as all legitimately her husband. But the person she was right now living with, living in sin, was not her husband. ESV study Bible note, and marries another implies that the second marriage, though it begins with adultery, is still a marriage. Once a second marriage has occurred, it would be sin to break it up. The second marriage should not be thought of as continually living in adultery, for the man and the woman are now married to each other and not to anyone else. So the standard put forth by Jesus is that the only exception that allows for divorce and remarriage between two believers is the case of sexual unfaithfulness, which violates the covenant relationship. <clears throat> Even then, he doesn't say it necessitates divorce, but it does allow for it. We always encourage repentance and reconciliation where possible. But this exception clause given by Christ in Matthew 19 does allow for the possibility of divorce and remarriage in the case of sexual unfaithfulness that violates the covenant relationship in marriage. I think I'm going to take a drink, which I typically don't do. 
This is consistent with what Paul also taught. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now to the married, he's talking to believers again. I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. And if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul says to the believers to not get divorced, which is exactly what Christ's emphasis was, with the only exception being sexual unfaithfulness. But if she does depart, that is, get divorced, then she can either remain in a state of singleness or be reconciled to her husband. Paul does not give believers the option to divorce and remarry, because that would be adultery. Now again, an adulterous remarriage can be forgiven, but we must not presume on the grace of God. It is, it is dangerous to do so. The only other exception in the New Testament that lays out the case uh, for possible remarriage is the case of a mixed marriage where the unbeliever departs, that is, forsakes the marriage. And in that case, Paul says the brother or sister is not under bondage, implying they are free to remarry. So here's an overview of what I see uh, the New Testament teaching regarding the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. If I was to summarize it, here's four important qualifiers. Number one, as seen in Matthew 19, the only legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage uh, when it comes to professing believers is immorality. I don't see any other biblical grounds uh, to, to, to divorce and remarry. But, but there are grounds there when it comes to sexual unfaithfulness. Number two, as seen in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if an unbelieving partner leaves the believer, then the believer is free. And I take it free to remarry. Number three, when a person becomes a believer, all things become new. Whatever your situation at that point, you go on from there. Again, you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. And we all come with scrambled eggs, by the way. Uh, th- that's, where we, that's where we are. Uh, we're all the same stuff here, really. There is no holier than thou anywhere. Verse 4, uh, verse number 4, excuse me, mine is not, my notes are not inspired. Uh, number 4, as a category of people, Paul speaks to those previously married but now single, to widowed and divorced, and says it is better to marry than to burn with lust. We must go from where we are at, seeking God for wisdom as we weigh all the biblical factors. Verse 10, this is heavy. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. The disciples got the point that Jesus was strongly emphasizing that marriage is to be for life. And that apart from actual immorality, there's no escape clause. Being influenced by the liberal standards of the day, they were taken aback. And they said, if that is the case, it's better not to ever get married in the first place. I mean, what if you end up with a contentious wife that Solomon evidently knew a lot about, of course, with all his wives, lots of things. But he said it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And then going a little further, he said it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. And then he said a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind. You know, Solomon had issues. What about situations like this? What if you end up with a contentious wife? No way out? Come on, Lord. Maybe it's better never to get married in the first place. After all, it seems like a pretty risky thing to do if this is permanent and there's no way out. 
Now, it is true that marriage is a very sobering reality and not to be entered into lightly because we do indeed vow to be married for better or worse until death do us part. I always think this is kind of humorous what Socrates once said when he said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. Yeah. But, but the answer is not to just not get married. I mean, God designed people to normally get married. I mean, it's God who even gives us the sex drive that we have. He designed marriage. And God's answer to having a blessed marriage is a spirit-filled life is addressed at great length in Ephesians 5. Yes, we live in a fallen world. And even as believers, we still have the flesh nature. And so there will be struggles all the way through until we get to glory. In the meantime, no matter what our circumstances may be, we need to closely walk with God, relying upon his grace, which he says is sufficient for even the thorniest of situations. Verse 11, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. The saying that, hey, it's better never to get married. Not, not everyone can accept this. Only those to whom it has been given. Not all can accept the idea of a lifelong celibacy. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And Jesus further explained, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. A eunuch is one who does not have the ability to be sexually active. Some are born with congenital defects, making them eunuchs from birth. Others are made eunuchs by men. Typically, a eunuch in the ancient world was a man who had been castrated, who was then employed by the king to guard the women's living areas in his court. It is thought that this was the case of Daniel, for example, living in Babylon. Others are made eunuchs because of injury. Uh, whatever the case, some are made eunuchs by men. And then there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. There are those who choose to remain celibate so they might serve the kingdom's interests without distraction. Jesus was in this category. Paul was in this category. Jesus affirmed this position saying, who is able to accept it, let him accept it. But he also said, only those given this can accept it, as seen in verse 11. D.A. Carson makes a good statement. It's important to recognize that neither Jesus nor the apostles see celibacy as intrinsically holier state than marriage, nor as a condition for the top levels of ministry, but as a special calling granted for greater usefulness in the kingdom. Those who impose this discipline on themselves must remember Paul's conclusion, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This statement from Jesus about celibacy is closely related to the previous issue of whether a divorced person must remain celibate. There are situations where in the sovereignty of God, we are given a certain lot and we must live accordingly. However, there are other situations where we can accept it or not accept it depending on what has been called our put-together. Uh, I got that from Chuck Swindoll. You know, he says, we don't all have the same put-together. Uh, you know, uh, some can't accept this. I mean, they, they need, it's better to marry than to burn. So, concluding observations. 
It seems to me that it is very fitting that the strongest passage on forgiveness immediately precedes the section dealing with the issue of divorce. You see, divorce is one of the hardest things in life to deal with, often even more so than death. Life does not give us a do-over. I wish I had some do-overs. How about you? You know what? We have to go from where we are. What's been done in the past is the past. People really worry too much about the past. You can't do anything about that other than get right with God. And once you're right with God, leave the past. Don't live in the past. All we can do is go on from where we are. And don't hold somebody else's past over them either. I mean, remember chapter 18? How much you've been forgiven. Don't be holier than thou. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Praise the Lord for His forgiveness. Any sin we have committed regarding the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is no more unforgivable than any other sin. God calls us to walk in freedom, not in ongoing bondage. If you have confessed your sin, you're forgiven. There is to be no lingering stigma for those uh, that are repentant. Whatever your current arrangement in life, you go from there and you go in freedom. And there's no second-class status. Say, well, I've got this constant cloud over my head. No, praise the Lord for forgiveness. Walk in freedom. I think of Joseph. His brothers treated him so badly violating every brotherly principle of love you can think of. After their father Jacob died, they came to Joseph falling down before him, falling on their face, saying, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph's response was, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? That's a great question. Who is in the place of God? No one is in the place of God. And if God has forgiven you and you are right with him, that is all that matters. You go from there. In his prayer of confession, after falling into adultery, followed by murder, a man after God's own heart, David, said to God, against you and you only have I sinned. What? What about this trail? Ultimately, accountability for sin is before God alone, who is the final judge, and he forgives the truly repentant. I refer you again to Matthew 18. But we never want to be presumptuous. Yes, Jacob had two sister wives, Rachel and Leah, you remember them, but it was characterized by constant strife and tension. Yes, Abraham had an illicit relationship with Hagar, and the Middle East is the hotbed of contention because of it, to this very day. Yes, David committed adultery, but the consequences were lifelong. Everywhere you look, the violation of God's design for marriage always has consequences. But we go from where we are. And uh, from this point on, what we as believers, our attitude should be, we want to follow God's design as closely as possible. That is where the blessing and the reward are to be found. We can't play games with God and get away, from, and get away with it. There are hundreds of scenarios that one has to deal with in this fallen world. We must apply the word of God inductively 
and as consistently and faithfully as possible at every point. Yes, we want to be strong as God is strong, but God is also strong in grace. There are clear lines, but there also is grace. Divorce is never good, but at times it may be permitted. Remarriage is never ideal, but at times it may be the best option. We must always stress the seriousness of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Marriage should never be entered into lightly, and neither should divorce or remarriage. Divorce should always be a last resort, and always with biblical grounds. Reconciliation should always be encouraged uh, wherever possible and biblical. Well, as with uh, the whole of life, marriage is ultimately a lordship issue, and the great issue in life is seeking to bring glory to God. That's, this is what should drive us as believers. As Paul says, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I, I like this little illustration. Formula for a healthy relationship. Talk about a marriage relationship here. Uh, her, him, uh, if you both work to be closer to God, then you will automatically begin to grow closer to one another. Uh, that's that very simple illustration, but that's the whole idea in sanctification, to be, be growing in our relationship with God, getting closer to God. Uh, I like this too. Marriage is not about a beautiful wedding, fancy homes, cute kids, nice cars, white picket fences. Marriage is about hospital stays, working long hours, fighting through struggles, paying bills, keeping the faith, and staying together through it all. Marriage is all these things and a whole lot more. Marriage is the union of two lives together in a covenant relationship to the glory of God. If you have two believers who are serious about Jesus and his word, and they as a way of life stay focused on Jesus then I believe that marriage will truly be blessed and God will be glorified. Whatever our station in life, may we make it our aim to live in accordance with God's design to the end that he may be glorified. In the end, it's really all about him. God help us to live accordingly. Let's stand and have our closing song.